Uh, if you have your Bible, flip open to the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2. Last week, uh, Jenna and I were in um, Vancouver, Canada, visiting some friends. And they go to this really great, like, street corner church that's really... Um, how diverse, there's a lot of different kind of people represented there, a lot of different languages. And uh, last week, when we were there, they decided, instead of doing a message, that uh, they were just going to read the book of Ephesians. That's what they did. No sermon, no, like, breakthrough intellectual thoughts from the pastor. It was just the book of Ephesians read like it was supposed to be read um, from beginning to end. Because it's a letter, it's an epistle to a church like our church, church in Ephesus, and it's all about the unity of the church. Um, that's the message Paul was trying to bring forth if he was here today saying the same thing in Ephesians, of like, church, be together, you and me and all of us together. And it was incredible to hear the book of Ephesians read um, from beginning to end. Um, it reminded me of some really simple profound truths, like, for example, that the Bible has a lot to say about what we're going through right now. When you just read it, like, one verse by one verse by one verse, you, you lose that big picture. You lose the continuity that, that the Bible speaks with from beginning to end and how relevant it really is to our life here and now with, with our relationships and our jobs and our economy and our culture. It's incredibly relevant. And beyond that, just sitting there letting the words kind of wash over me through the whole congregation, it was just incredible to sit and remember that God is good. That he's good. And that that goodness is what compels him to love. It's just overwhelming. The sense of God's love for you and for me that comes through in the book of Ephesians. And so I, I wanted to, to read uh, a little bit of it to you this morning and kind of to kind of jump off from it. Um, chapter 2, verse 4 through 9. I'm sorry, verse 4 through 10. says this, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with us, seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, that's a lot. It's a lot packed in for, for one Sunday, uh, for one message. Um, but there's a couple things in there that I want to look at because really what I want to look at today, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the usefulness of my life. And because you're here today, the usefulness of your life. How useful are you? How useful am I? I mean, really, at the end of the day, what, what does it come down to? Um, so I, I want to look at three things today. I want to look at faith. I want to look at fruit. 
And I want to look at something I'm calling the measure of Christ. So faith and fruit and the measure of Christ. Um, my, my thinking about faith lately has been kind of shaped by uh, this book that I've been reading with Jenna. Uh, we're reading it out loud, which is really powerful if you've ever done that. Read a book with somebody out loud. It's just a totally different experience than reading it together. Uh, I'm reading it alone um, in your own head. But it's a book called A Severe Mercy, and it's by a guy named Sheldon Van Auken. And he lived kind of in the 1900s, and um, incredible writer, incredible poet, um, just an incredible guy. And he was really good friends with a guy named C.S. Lewis. And we talk about C.S. Lewis here a lot. He's kind of a big deal. Shaped a lot of our thinking. Um, so he has this correspondence with C.S. Lewis through these letters. And so this is the book about his life, about how he falls in love with this girl named Davy. And they have this dream to see the world on a, on a ship that they build with their own hands called the Grey Goose. And um, they get to do it, but it's just an incredible, an incredible story. And it talks about faith in a really interesting way because a lot of times I'm stuck when it comes to faith. Faith seems like a paradox a lot of the times. And uh, w when I kind of started here at Antioch, I ran the, the young adult ministry, and they, the name, the title of the ministry was Paradox. It's, it's mystery. It's mystery that you have to have faith to believe, but to believe you must have faith. That there's something in that that just doesn't really mesh really well with us right off the bat. We think, man, this, is, this doesn't work. This doesn't make sense. So how do we, how do we look at faith? How do we talk about faith? Well, there's, a, there's a thousand different ways we could go with that. Um, but I want to read you this passage from, uh, from Sheldon Van Auken. And this is about halfway through the book. They've started their lives together as um, they call themselves theists. They believe in beauty, very much so. They believe in goodness, very much so. But they don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in the church. They don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, so they're led on this kind of whimsical, romantical journey that's built around pursuing beauty. And so halfway through the book, um, this is what happens. It says this, Christianity, in a word, the divinity of Jesus, seemed probable to me. But there's a gap between the probable and proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. And I got none of these. And I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. Now, Davy and I, sometimes with friends, sometimes alone, were reading Dorothy Sayers' tremendous series of short plays on the life of Jesus. In one of them, I was forcibly struck by the reply of the man to Jesus' inquiry about his faith. Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Wasn't that just my position? Believing and not believing? A paradox. Like that other paradox, was, I'm sorry, one must have faith to believe, but must believe in order to have faith. A paradox to unlock a paradox. That's what I felt it was. Now, one day later, there came a second intellectual breakthrough. It was the rather chilling realization that I could not go back. In my old easygoing theism, I had regarded Christianity as a sort of fairy tale, and I had neither accepted nor rejected Jesus since I had never, in fact, encountered him. But now, I had the position was not, as I had comfortably been thinking all these months, merely of question, a question of whether I was to accept the Messiah or not. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject. 
my God, there was a gap behind me too. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God, there was no certainty that he was not. If I were to accept, I might and probably would face the thought through the years, perhaps, after all, it's a lie I've been had. But if I were to reject, I would certainly face the haunting, terrible thought, perhaps it's true, and I have rejected my God. This was not to be. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do. Once I had seen the gap behind me, I turned away. I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. He does a great job of pinpointing that moment or that time uh, where the paradox seems so paradoxical it's unsurmountable that you can't get through it. But what he said was all, all the while up as I had thought about Christianity, thought I should look at it, diagnose it, assess it, figure out if it was good for me or not good for me. He said all that while the one thing that was different was I had never encountered Christ. But now I had. I was marked. There was something about his presence about his reality, about his nature. And it was that nature, it was that truth about who he is that allowed him to realize it's either forwards or it's backwards. I fling myself away from him and reject what I have seen or I fling myself toward him trusting he is who he says he is. And in that mystery, in that paradox is faith. And it all revolves around one thing. And, and this is what we forget to talk about sometimes at church. It's what we forget to celebrate sometimes in our relationships. And that's this. This is all about Christ. One thing. One person. It's the encounter with him. It's faith in him. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says that Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it is because of that, it's because of him that we can press on. It's because of him that we believe and we have hope. See, I really think that hope and faith are connected. There's not a single person in here this morning that doesn't have faith. It's true. The the Christian church doesn't have a corner on the market. We all have faith whether we know it or whether we don't know it, whether we use that word or we don't use that word. Maybe a a word you're more familiar with is is hope. What do you have hope in? Where is your hope? It can be yourself. It can be your marriage. It can be your kids. It can be your job. It can be your heritage. It can be your trust fund. Where is your hope? And if we talk about that, we'll start to boil it down and figure out where it is your faith goes. And see, that's the thing that, that Van Auken is talking about. And that I want to remind us of this morning over and over and over. It's not about have faith, but it's what is the object of your faith? That's what makes all the difference. Up until that point in the book, Van Auken's faith was in beauty. It was in his wife. It was in their time together. And here in this well-written uh, you know, journal entry, He's saying Christ came into that and it changed it. Now he has become the object of my faith. I fix my eyes to Christ 
not to myself, not to my job, not to my family or my heritage, not to my trust fund, not to my house, not to anything. I fix it on Christ. And that is the thing. All throughout the New Testament, all throughout Jesus' life, all throughout Paul's letters, all throughout John's letters and Peter's letters, we hear it over and over. Faith in Christ. That's the story of the church. That's why you and I are here. And as we read in Ephesians, that is, a, it's a gift. It's a gift. That's what Paul's saying. What Christ has done for us, his grace is a gift. That while we were fixing our faith on other objects, while we were trusting in other things, and the language we, we hear in the Bible for that is idolatry. When we take something small, uh, Ken, Ken used this language a while ago, and I thought it was very poetic. When we take something small and elevate it to a big divine thing, something like a marriage or something like a job or something like a friendship and we, or something like destructive like, like alcohol or, or drugs or, or sex, and we take that thing and we elevate it to this thing and expect a completeness from this incomplete thing. We've made that the object of our faith. That is what we go to for our hope. And while we were doing that, while we were busy lifting up these small things to make them big to complete us, this is what Paul says, that's when Jesus comes with his grace. And he says, while you're busy making your own gods, putting your faith in other things, I'm here giving my life up for you. That's why I'm here. That's the gift that I'm here to give to you guys. That's how he said it, and it's the same truth 2,000 years later in Bend, Oregon today. His grace is a gift. Um, so what do we do with that? Um... Paul goes on later to say in, in 2 Corinthians, um, when you boast, don't boast about yourself. Boast about Christ, about what he's done. Um, not about your accomplishments. Not about anything. Boast about him because it's him that's allowed this. I mean, imagine... Imagine a Christianity without Christ. What do we have? We have the Old Testament. We have the Torah. We have the Pentateuch. We have the law. We have the Psalms. We have the wisdom books. We have the prophets. We have the Old Testament. We have what we had for a long time. But Christ shows up, and the first thing he says is he announces, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. What you've been waiting for forever is here. This is it. I am the one bringing it in, the Messiah. Because I want to give you this gift. I want to free you from the busyness if you have of taking these small things and making them big. I want to free you from that oppression. I want to free you from that tyranny and that slavery, that's bondage. And I'm here to give you freedom. That's how Paul puts it later in Galatians. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's for freedom. And so it's him. He is the object at the center 
of the story, of my story, perhaps of a lot of your stories, of Sheldon Van Auken's stories, of a lot of stories. He is the defining moment. So, we have faith, and we have fruit. And this is the thought that's been kind of consuming me the last couple weeks. Um, We don't talk about faith a lot. We don't celebrate faith a lot. And, And I have a very small, myopic picture of the world. Maybe yours is much different. I can only see what I see. I'm 28, and I'm... I'm white and I'm tall, which like really changes your worldview um, more than you would believe. Um, and I'm like 28, and I still don't have a good question for how tall. Like, wow, you're so tall. Did you play basketball? Like, I feel like I should have a really witty comeback after 28 years, and I got nothing. I just, yeah, it's kind of boring. But I, that's me, and this is this is what I see in the church. This concept of faith we have and we know, and we know that the Bible says, you know, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's by faith that you're saved. Um, It's not by works. And that word, works, um, fruit. We have faithfulness and we have fruitfulness. Um, We elevate this so high. We love to talk about fruit, what you're doing, what you're accomplishing, what you're achieving, what you are succeeding with your life and your time and your energy and your resources. What are you achieving? And, and we, we, I think we elevate that. And we leave faith kind of down here like, yeah, it's a given. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's celebrate this because this is what we can, we can really look at. And I think, you know, admittedly, the culture that you and I live in works its way into the church. Right? We, we have a very consumer-friendly culture. Uh, we just all survived Christmas. I mean, it's consumer-friendly culture. Um, in a thousand different ways beyond Christmas, it's a consumer-friendly culture. And we do this thing, the economic term, commodify. We take something and we turn it into a commodity, like, like a shovel is a commodity. It has value because it has a purpose, it has a function, and when we need to perform that function, we have to go and consume this commodity to make it happen. Um, water is a commodity. Food is a commodity. All these things are commodity, and we consume them, and we use them, and we throw away the trash because now it's empty of its value because it's no longer good. I mean, a rusty shovel is no longer effective. A shovel with a broken handle, we throw away, and we start over because we have to have what we need to do the function. Now, the problem is, or one of the problems is, when you and I begin to commodify one another, when we turn a human being into a product, when we have a felt need and we employ a person to satisfy that. Now, what, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is if somebody is not useful in our eyes, they have no value. They have no worth. And what do you do with things of no worth or things of no value? I don't know. Chain them up and put them in a brothel because they don't have value? Take what you want from them because they don't have value? Or take only what you want from them but not all of them because you're not interested in that? All you want is what you need? Therefore, diminishing their value. When we commodify each other, when we only see in the other person what we need, we're missing 
picture. We're missing the value, uh, the presence of that person. And we exercise our, our own unhealth, our own unhealth. We take our fear and we let it win. We take our, our temptation and we let it win. And we, we, just, we just use people to meet those needs. And when it doesn't work, we leave. I mean, how many times does that happen at church? That church just wasn't meeting my needs. You know, that was too much about music and not enough about Scripture, so it just wasn't meeting my needs. Like, we, we consume everything, even each other. Um, so the way, I was, the way I was thinking about this, um, you know, by the way, let me say this real quick. Fruit is not a bad thing. And I'll get, I'll get to this later, but fruit is very much rooted in the Christian faith. Um, go read John 15. It's all about fruit. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branch. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Galatians 5.22, uh, a lot of us know that by heart. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Like, fruit is a very Christian thing. But what happens when we diminish faith and we elevate fruit is that becomes the conversation. That becomes the celebration. That becomes the obsession. So I was thinking about this this week, and uh, Tom, could you come help me out real quick, man? Oh, way to go. Everybody saw that. Um, here's the deal. Can I just have you stand like right there on that, on that cross right there? So uh, I'm thinking about this. Um, at home over Christmas, uh, going to um, you know, church there at, at church in, in Canada, listening to the book of Ephesians. The idea of what happens when we diminish faith and elevate fruit and make that the thing that we, that we uh, decide we want from each other. And the way we communicate with each other is I'll value you for what you can do, and that's it. Beyond that, you have nothing to offer me. So here's kind of this, this thought played out with a couple of measuring tapes. Um, let's say that if you just, all your, your only job is to hold on to that. You got this? Okay. So this is, this is what I'm thinking um, when, we, when we put fruit before faith is, uh, is this guy who's measuring out his life. Uh, we'll, call him, we'll call him Tom. No offense, but it just came to me. Um, this guy's measuring out his life. He's measuring out um, what he's good at. He's measuring out what he's accomplishing. And he's, he's looking at this, and he's saying, don't let go. He's saying, okay, I'm doing pretty good. Look at this. I, I, you know, let's say for, for uh, example's sake, this guy is a Christian. He's been at church for like 25 years. He was even a pastor for like 10 of those years. And he's an elder at the church, and he, he's on the board, and he leads he leads things, and um, he, he knows how to pray, and he fasts, and he understands all these things. And he's got, he's got some wisdom because he's been around a long time, and he's been through a lot of things, and, and he is a Christian. There is a lot of fruit to his life, and that's what he's measuring here is look at what I've accomplished. Look at my fruit. It's incredible. And then Bob comes to church. Wounded, hurting. I haven't prayed a day in his life. When you say fast, he thinks he's a race. It's the language, the vocabulary, the whole concept is foreign, but he's hurting and he's coming to church because he thinks maybe there's, there's something there. And there's no fruit. 
And he comes in, and, and, and not, probably even not to the fault of this guy, he looks at him and he's like, good grief, I've got so far to go. I've got, I've got so far to go. Look at me. I, I'm tiny and I'm small and I'm worthless because I'm bearing no fruit. I measure it out and I've got like two feet. This guy's got like 25 feet. I feel small. I feel tiny. I feel insignificant. I feel like maybe I don't fit here. And what happens when the guy who's got all this fruit, the guy who's in a leadership position in the church is looking around saying, you down there, where's your fruit? You can't come in here. That's pretty extreme. But we might do that in more subtle ways. Don't we? Come on, man. What are you doing? You gotta be useful. You, you gotta produce something significant. And so over here, maybe there's a little bit of pride. And over here, definitely, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt. Man, I'm just not good enough. And so what if... You have to figure this one out on your own. There you go. <laughs> now there's this guy. Maybe he's been around a little bit. I want to measure out my life. I want to stack up to this guy. I want to be. I want to be useful. I want to do great things. But I'm just not. I'm just not there, man. And then maybe he looks at this guy and is like, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. I mean, I'm, not, I'm no this guy, but I'm not that guy. And how often do we run around with that game going on inside our heads, comparing ourselves over and over and over to this guy who measures out his fruit, and, and we just don't feel like we match up, but then we turn around and we see somebody else, and we're like, good grief, that's a mess. At least, at least I can show up to church with matching clothes. You know? Or, or, or whatever it is. Thanks, man. You can, you can sit down. I just need you to hold those for me. Perfect. So we've got, we've got this laid out here, the measure of our usefulness. We, we do this to ourselves, and we do it to each other. Someone walks in the room, and you measure them. You size them up. I do. And we think, man, you know, wherever we fall in here, maybe you're like eight feet. I don't know. Maybe you're like 80 feet. It's possible. But when we put fruit before faith, when we elevate it over faith, that becomes the driving thing. That becomes the motivation. That becomes the thing that we are convinced we must have to fit in. The thing we must have to be accepted. So what do we do? What do we do when someone shows up? And we, we perceive no usefulness. I mean, have you ever had a relationship with somebody that offered you absolutely nothing in return? No honor, no money, um, you know, no relationship, I mean, like, no sex. Like, have you ever had a relationship with somebody that literally had nothing to offer you? It's, it's profound. It's profound, and, and it's getting close to the message of the gospel, to what Paul is trying to beat into our heads, to what Jesus is saying all throughout his life. It's like, you can do this all you want. And, and Jesus showed up, and he looked at this, and he, he sized it up, and he's like, look, you guys can go play this game. You can do this. You can worry about your power and your reputation, and you can worry about that. I'm not going to. I'm going to work and walk and focus on these people here. 
That's why I'm here. It's about faith in me, Jesus says. It's not about faith in your fruit. Faith in your works, in your accomplishments, in your success. It's not about that. It's about me. So when we elevate fruit over faith, that becomes the thing we value most of all. And that's exactly how our culture works. That's who we put on the magazines. That's who we put in the newspapers. That's who we put on TV. It's, it's, it's the people who have success, who their biographies are like anthems long, who the award, I mean, the trophy shelf at their house is huge. Like those are the people that we look up to. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to look up to somebody and say, I desire what you have. I, I mean, let me repeat that. Um, if it's, if it is the intangible fruits of the Spirit. I mean, the fruits of the Spirit are not, you will have a big house, and you will lead 9,000 people to Christ, and you will go on 74 short-term mission trips, and you will tithe approximately $100,000 in your lifetime. Like, that's not what it says. It would be love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, these character issues This is what happens when Christ becomes the center, the object of your faith. This is what happens to you. And you know what's going to come out of that? Jesus says in John 15, fruit. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, there will be fruit. But if you forget me, if you forget me and just go worry about this, I could care less. I mean, how shocking is this? In the the book of Revelation, Jesus is communicating to the churches. And to one of them, he says, look, you guys do great worship. You're even serving some people. But let me tell you something. This is the only thing I have against you, but it's a big one. You forgot your first love. And you hear that language sometimes in church, the first love. You see it in the Bible, the first love. Jesus is saying, if I'm not the first love, if I'm not the biggest object, if I'm not the thing, the object at the center of your faith, it doesn't matter what you do, even if it looks Christian. I mean, if, if you haven't been to church ever or in a long time, I know you have a story. And I know you've got some stuff going on, maybe some questions, maybe some doubt, maybe things that you believe strongly in. Absolutely. But do not come in here to church and look at the guys doing this and start mimicking them. I mean, we can easily become a church of imposters, a church of people that aren't rooted in faith, but we're just obsessed with fruit. And every culture has that. Um, you can come into church and just say, you know what, these guys, well, they give money, that's, I'll do that. They worship, well, okay, I'll do that. They, um, they go out and evangelize, well, I'll do that. Mission trips, I'll do that. And we can do that. And I know God can work through that. But you know how God is going to work through that? He's going to work through it to call you to himself, to say, no, no, the fruit that you're looking at is evidence of a relationship with me. When I'm at the center, these are the kinds of things that will happen to you. You will become this kind of person. Don't obsess about that. And don't give anybody the time of day that shames you because of that. I mean, I'll admit there's probably some pride in church. 
There's probably some pride in, in ministry and pastors. I mean, you want, you want something that, that messes with your head, worrying about the usefulness of a message as you're walking up to give it. <laughs> and we're so worried about usefulness, fitting in, knowing the right things to say, doing it the right way. I mean, we're, we're absolutely consumed by that. It's like Jesus says to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, no, guys, I love that you worship. I love that you give. I love that you serve. But not if it's not founded in me. You can do all of these things. You can, but you have to start here. You have to start with me. I have to be the center of your faith. Does that make some kind of sense? Um, one of the things that, to me, one of the saddest things that happens in Christianity, in, in, in church, in our lives, is when we use shame to motivate people. When we're down here um, and we look back at those younger than us, more immature than us, maybe with more heartache than us, with, who got a later start than us, and we just say, man, it's, it's too bad. And, and we, when we heap shame on them. And I remember a couple years ago, I was watching this movie, this crazy movie called The Edge. Have you ever seen that movie? It's uh, Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin, and they get stranded in the wilderness in Alaska from a plane crash. They were flying out, and like a gaggle of geese got caught in the engine, and pff, they just crashed. And like Anthony Hopkins is like this 70-year-old billionaire who has a supermodel wife, and um, he loves like outdoor books. So he's been reading about like outdoor survival. And Alec Baldwin is like this young hotshot model agent or something like that. And um, so it's like how these guys survive. And at one point, one guy gets eaten by a bear, and that's pretty gnarly. Um, but that's like the big threat is there's this hungry bear that's like hunting Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins. And um, I, I remember this, this scene, like I was laying down on the couch watching this movie like nearly asleep. And uh, like the bear just wasn't enough to engage, grab my attention. Like nearly asleep. And there's this scene like after they wrecked. And... Um, Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin are there, and Alec Baldwin is freaking out. Oh, my gosh, the plane crashed from the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows where we are. We're going to freeze to death. We're going to starve. We're going to die. We don't have any fire. Everything that, you know, could, gone wrong, could possibly go wrong has gone wrong, and here we are. And uh, Alec Baldwin, or, I'm sorry, uh, Anthony Hopkins, this, this old wise guy, is just like, stop it. And he said, do you know the number one reason why people die in the wilderness and Alec Baldwin had all these answers. And he's like, no. The number one reason why people die in the wilderness, shame. It's shame. He said, you're so convinced you did something wrong, that you messed up, that you should have been better, that you weren't prepared enough, that you panic. And when you panic, you do stupid things. And when you're panicking and doing stupid things, you cannot do the one thing that you must do in this situation, which is think. I love that answer. 
And, and as he was giving that speech, I was nearly falling asleep, and he said, the number one reason people die in the wilderness is shame. And laying there, I kind of went, huh, that's exactly how it is in church. I don't know why I remember that, because I fell asleep right after that. <laughs> that's exactly how it is in church. The number one reason why people come to church and don't come back or they get burned by church is shame. If they come in and they don't measure up, if they feel like they don't measure up, if they have all of these expectations for them and they panic, and they panic and they get busy, and they worry themselves with fitting in and measuring up, so they do this and they do that and they do this and they do that, and never once in the whole process do they stop and realize that someone take them by the hand and sit them down and say, look, this is the heart of the history of the world. God loves you, and he wants you to know him. Let's, let's, let's look at that for however long. This will come, and it'll look different, right? It's not the same for... For any two people, it'll look different because you're different and you're unique and God knows that. And God would be heartbroken if you showed up and, and forsook your own identity the way that he made you with the gifts and the skills to go fit in and do all this stuff because you're panicked and because you're ashamed. No, I've got something for you, God says. If you just go in and mimic all of this, you're missing me. And that's the whole point of this. That's the whole point of church this morning. You and me sitting here, moms and dads and brothers and single people and married people. It's that God loves us. It's that he loves us. And if we're so busy worrying about the usefulness of our own lives, maybe, maybe we have forgotten where this starts. It's possible. I mean, Scripture's saturated with the word Remember. Remember your God. Remember what he's done. I mean, go back and read Exodus. The story of God's people being freed from bondage. I mean, it's incredible. They're like three days out of, of generations of slavery, and already they're like, how did we get here? <laughs> what, what was it that led us here? Oh, it was Moses, that jerk. Now he's gone up the mountain. So they panic Let's, let's do our own thing. Let's make something small and make it big and put our trust in that. And Moses comes down and he's like, no, you guys got to remember. You've already forgotten who God is. And who God is changes everything. And the way it changes everything, I hope, for Antioch, for me, for the whole, for the whole church, for every person alive, the thing that I hope is that God's nature changes us and sets us free. And that's the thing. I, I've been thinking about freedom. Why aren't we more free? Why are we so worried? Why are we so obsessed? Why are we so busy measuring each other up? Why are we so busy comparing ourselves to the guy sitting next to us or, or the girl on TV? I mean, why are we so consumed with that? Is it maybe because we've forgotten the goodness of God. We've let shame make us busy, preoccupied. We're panicked to be praised. Ephesians 4, 7, um, Paul says this, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. 
Grace was given to me and to you according to the measure of Christ's gifts. This is the heart of the gospel. (laughs) Grace was not given to you. You're not loved because of the measure of your own life. Grace was given to you and you are loved because of the measure of Christ's gift. You're free from this. You're free from it. I'm free from it. We don't have to obsess about it because God loves us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. You know how far Christ's gift goes? I mean, the passage we read this morning, it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. The the gift that Christ has given for you and for me. I mean, it's for freedom that we have been set free. What good is it? What good is it to go from a job that overworks you and wears you out to come into a church that overworks you and wears you out? To go from bondage in one place to a bondage in another place. What good is that? I mean, what good is it to come out of a relationship that's abusive, to come into a church that's abusive? What good is that? We can't go from one place of bondage to another place of bondage and just say, well, it's a church, so it must be okay. This must be how it works because I'm new here. No, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's according to his gift measured out infinitely that you and I have a shot at life, that we have a shot of knowing who we really are, of being able to love our neighbors. It's all because Christ is at the center of it. It's because of what he's done, the measure of his gift, not the measure of our fruits that were loved. It's amazing how it doesn't take a long time at all forget this. Um, I'll go ahead and have the band get ready to come back up and we'll close with this. Um, first year in ministry, I graduated college, went into full-time ministry, um, doing high school and middle school ministry. And uh, seven months into it, I sat down with a mentor of mine who'd been doing ministry for about 50 years. He was a, like a 74-year-old retired army chaplain. It's just a really great guy. And I sat down with him and I asked him, and his name is Bud, I said, Bud, did you ever realize that you can do ministry without Christ in your life? And he's really smart, so he looked at me and he said, you know, the only way you can learn that lesson is to do it. And I was totally busted. But it, it needed to happen. It needed to happen because I was so busy doing ministry. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I would, I would, so, I would set, I would, what am I trying to say? I would show up and I would set up the room, and they would come, and I'd greet all the kids, and I would lead the worship playing guitar and singing, and then I would lead the game that all they, would, they would all do, and then I would give the message, and I'd play more songs, and then I'd go out and meet all their parents when they get picked up, and their parents would say, like, you're awesome, you're doing great, we're so grateful that you're here. And I'd go home at night and be like, this is such a paradox to me. They're, 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 they're telling me I'm doing a good job, but I really don't feel like I've had a genuine conversation with Christ in six months. How is this possible? They're looking at the fruit and they're saying, this is good, but I'm I'm saying, no, there's got to be something going on here. It's easy to forget that because we get so consumed with measuring what we're doing, so convinced that that's the right way to go. But it's by faith in Christ, the measure of Christ's gift. So I'll close with this. um, That year... Um, after that conversation with Bud, I went to a coffee shop. 
and uh, sat down with my Bible and I wrote this because I, I like to write to think things through. And I just want to share it with you guys as um, maybe encouragement. Um, I was sitting in a coffee shop and um, realized that I was sitting with a stranger. That's what it felt like. I was all by myself. And so I put my pen down on my paper and, and I read this and I hope that maybe this week as you maybe think about faith, maybe think about fruit, the, the immeasurable gift of Christ that maybe something like this would, would go on for you too. I wrote this. Jesus, you are really brilliant, you know that? I'm afraid to look you in the eyes because I know in that moment you'll know everything about me. But sitting here with you, I can't help but glance at you. My eyes scan the horizon, they search the trees and witness my trembling hands, but yours are fixed on me. And I try to tell you through loss of breath that you're amazing, I mean really amazing. Amazing in life, amazing in death, amazing in life again. It's incredible you meet me like you do. And I don't know why, but you let me call you mine and you call me yours. It's absolutely undeniable, yet I struggle to look you in the eye. Almost as if I know your beauty will trip me to the floor and press me to the ground. But I want you to know it's nice to just sit here and be with you. It's good to feel completely nervous and absolutely comfortable all at the same time. It's really great. I mean, it's absolutely great to be with you and have you listen to me fumble through these words. I hope you don't mind me asking you here. I don't think you do. I'm convinced you like being with me and that feels like spring inside my soul. So I guess all I really want to say is thank you. I appreciate you, Jesus. You seem too good to be true, but you're not. You're completely real, and I love that. Brilliant. You're just brilliant. And I hope you never get tired of hearing me say that. Father, I pray that um, the temptation we have, the shame we feel, the guilt that leads us to panic, Lord, I pray that, Lord, we'd remember. Simple as that, remember you. Remember your words. Remember that it's not about us. The measure of our fruit. God, it's about the measure of your gift. That we dethrone anything that we're hoping in. Dethrone anything that we've made the object of our faith and just realize you're good. You're good, God. And it's your goodness that compels you to love, to give. God, I pray that we'd be a church that receives that gift, receives it and just celebrates it and allows you to work, allows you to bring the fruit about in our lives, to give us a ministry and a calling. God, thank you for church and for your word. We pray all this in your son's name.